0: my first time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm uh, glad to be here and, and privileged to have the opportunity to share God's word with you and to uh, fellowship with you and to hopefully encourage or hopefully we encourage each other as uh, we hear from the Lord this morning. So let's just uh, let's open up in prayer before we get started. So Uh, Father God, we just lift our hearts to You. God, we give You this time, we give You this service, where we just dedicate uh, every word that comes out of my mouth and every thought that is in here to You. Lord, I pray that You would uh, just invade us with Your presence. God, that during this time, that we would be touched, and we would be changed. Father, we would be just covered in Your Gospel, that we would go out from here encouraged and strengthened. Father God, encourage our hearts, Lord, strengthen us. We love you, Father, and we we give you praise and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14, we'll start in verse 25. And uh, this is the story that is very familiar to all of us, it's uh, Peter. Walking on the water. Uh, let's get started, and it says During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the, di- when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And uh, we're all very familiar with this with this passage. We've all read it. We've all heard it since we were in Sunday school. But I want to draw our attention to a particular aspect. Um, and, well, first I'll start with a question of what was the difference between the Peter... Who was so filled with courage and zeal and faith, who stepped out of the boat, and the Peter, who then began to sink. Because it seems like such a different person in such a short span of time. you know It seems like all of us at one point, he's got just this tremendous amount of faith and zeal and enough to step out of a boat onto stormy seas. And the next minute He's sinking, and he's well. First, he's walking, and he's and he's going. Everything's good, and then the next minute, he's he's sinking. And uh, I ask myself, well, what what is the difference between the Peter that steps out of the boat and the Peter that is sinking? And uh, the sentence that catches my eye when I ask this question is, "But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink." And uh, the necessary action of seeing the wind in the waves is not seeing Jesus. Is that when he sees the wind in the waves, he is not looking at the one that inspired him to step out of the boat. Because when we're looking at Jesus walking on the water, it's amazing. We're, we are filled with wonder and faith and awe. And then when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we start to look at those situations in our lives, the the wind and the waves that are surrounding us, all of a sudden we begin to sink. We begin to lose faith, do we not? And with Peter, it's like a matter of, I'm not sure how long he's walking on the water, but it doesn't seem like it's that long. It's a matter of just moments. And uh, so often I think I feel like that also, that one moment... I can be full of faith looking at Jesus, full of confidence and assurance in my salvation. And the next minute I can look away and be filled with fear and doubt. And it's, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't take a long time, it's just, it's just briefly. You know, that we look away and we're filled with fear and doubt. And so, uh, this morning, I want to call us back to turning our eyes and looking at the one who has inspired us to faith, the one who has called us out of our boats, and I want to I want to redirect our attention to be looking at Jesus again this morning. And uh, the verse that uh, sort of in, we all think of when we think about looking at Jesus is Hebrews twelve, and it's uh, therefore. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Such a good verse, such a a good encouragement, is it not? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who authors our faith and the one who perfects it. Sometimes, uh, but I think that that concept of fixing our eyes on Jesus is a little bit uh, beyond us, you know, as many metaphors are. We're like, what exactly does that mean? How do we apply that? And so I want to take a moment to just uh, talk a little bit about the action of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, Isaiah 26:3 tells us that uh, it's speaking of the Lord, and it says, You will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. And uh, the sort of two things that I get out of this verse, uh, the first is that uh, his mind is fixed on you. That he's constantly thinking about you. Another translation is that his, his mind is steadfast in you. That we are steadfast in our thoughts about the Lord. That we think about the Lord. And to a great extent, I think that we are, we are in control of where our thoughts go, are we not, to the majority of our time, we're, we're conscious of what we're thinking about, and we're, we are able to control that. But the next thing that occurs to me is a little bit uh, beyond us, in the sense that it is something that takes place outside of, and, and, and it takes more than our conscious effort at our will, and it says, because he trusts in you. And that is the response that I think really we're looking at and we're getting at when we fix our eyes on Jesus. When we can, you know, we can turn our attention to Him and we can, we can look at Jesus and we can think about who He is and we can think about the truth that He lived and walked and died for us and rose again. But if we don't enter into that truth with faith, with, our, with, a, with a trusting heart through faith, it does no good because it doesn't change us. And I think that is uh, a lot of times what happens as we continue our Christian walk, as we, as we move along, as we, uh, as we begin our journey. You know, we're filled with zeal, as Peter was filled with zeal, and we're excited. But we move along, and we, we somehow, uh, things become just routine. You know, it just becomes this truth that we're accepting. And. That's what I want to call us back to. You know, fixing our eyes on Jesus in a way that it penetrates our hearts. That we are just we are just soaking in Jesus, in the gospel story, that we're like sponges that, that just soak up the truth of the gospel. And, and it changes, it fills us completely all the way to the middle of who we are. And so this morning, uh, We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at who he was, what he did. And what I want most of all as we look at these things is for us to be called back to that place where we are filled with joy and thankfulness and praise for who Jesus is and what he has done for us in a way that it changes us, in a way that we fix our eyes on Jesus. And we trust in Him because we're filled with faith. And that's the second step, is is we can can look to Jesus, but it's up to God to fill us with the faith that trusts. Is it not? That we can, out of our will and out of our intention, turn our eyes on Jesus, but in some ways, it's out of our hands then, our faith. Because it says that Jesus is the author of our faith. And so... uh, in some ways, we're taking a step of faith this morning as we turn our attention to Jesus because we're trusting that He will meet us and that He will fill our hearts. And so, that's been my prayer as I've been preparing, as I've been thinking, is that He would meet us here this morning and that we would be encouraged and that we would go from this place having soaked in the Gospel, having been filled with the truth and the knowledge of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, as we turn and as we look at Jesus, I think there's uh, three ways that I want to take us there. And that is, uh, is looking at Jesus in his life, in his death, and again in his resurrection. Um, so first, let's, let's turn our eyes to Jesus in his life and uh, who he was. And the great creeds uh, tell us, particularly the Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed That uh, Jesus was God from God. He was light from light. He was true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Now, He is one being with the Father. The word that they used to create this creed was homoousis, if I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe Jim would know homoousis. And it means of one substance, of the same substance. And that was the term that these these church fathers created to think about Jesus. And And it just connotes the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Jesus. Scripture tells us that God was pleased to have the fullness of Himself dwell in the incarnation of Christ. And I think I want to allow us to be struck once again with the awesomeness of this truth, and also the mystery of this truth. I want to allow us to to kind of just rest in the fact that that is a mysterious thought. You know, we often wrestle with these kinds of scriptural truths in a way that that we try to figure it out and reason it through and, and line it up in a logical way. But I think I want to call us to just be able to rest in the mystery of the person of Christ and His incarnation. Um, because it's a, it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. And if we're able to just witness the glory of the incarnation of Christ without trying to figure it out, without trying to put it all together, I think we'll be blessed. I think we'll be blessed. The Gospel of John puts the incarnation another way. He says uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He goes on that the Word became flesh and, and made his dwelling among us, or dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, it's kind of a bit more of an of a artistic rendering of the incarnation of Christ. In this word that he dwelt among us, uh, in the Greek, it can also be translated as to tent or to tabernacle. That's kind of another connotation of this, of this word, to dwell. And I'm, I, I, as I prepared, I kind of thought back to the Hebrew mind, reading these scriptures and thinking about that, and, and thinking that surely this word, to tabernacle, or to, to, to tent with us, would hearken back to uh, the Israelites in the desert, when the tabernacle was where the glory of God dwelt. It's where the glory of God made its home with the people of Israel. And surely the Jewish person reading this would have, would have thought of that and would have said, okay, wait a minute, you know, here's the tabernacle. This is where the glory of God dwelt when He was with us. And now John is telling us that the glory of God is dwelling in the same way in the person of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? What does that mean that God's glory is dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ? It's an incredible thought. And in fact, as we look at that, we see that Jesus was the temple of God and his glory dwelled. And so it's been removed from the tabernacle that the, that the Jews had and it's been placed in the person of Jesus Christ. That no longer is the glory of God only available to a chosen people, to the, to, the Israel, to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, but now it's been taken out of the tabernacle and made available to everyone who would pursue Christ, who would be in Christ. That The glory of God, the very glory that was in the tabernacle, has been made available to us. And it's an incredible thought that we can come into that into that very same presence through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is available to us. And to me, that action of, of coming from a place where the glory of God was only available to a specific group to a place where it's available to all of us in Jesus Christ, is just a, it's a reflection of God's pursuit of His children that He created as a whole. No longer is He just pursuing the Israelites and and making His glory known there. But He is pursuing all of those that He created. It's been extended in the person of Christ to include the Gentiles. There's no longer slave, nor free Jew, nor Greek. There's none of that. It's just those who are found in Christ and those who are not. And my heart is encouraged, and I rejoice when I think of the pursuit of God for me that is displayed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That when we look at the person of Jesus, that we see God pursuing His people. That we see God calling us to enter into His presence, to enter into His worship, to enter into His glory. And that is such an encouraging thought. That if we can allow ourselves to, by faith, enter into the truth that God is pursuing us, that God is after us? That changes the way we see the world, does it not? And not only is God after us, God is after everyone. Second uh, Peter tells us that um, God is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to, to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness. I like that phrase, as some understand slowness, because God is, is about His business all the time. He's about the business of pursuing us all the time. And I find that that's encouraging on several levels. That First, I know many of us have people that we care deeply about who do not know God. I know that many of us have been praying for a long time for people that uh, haven't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I think it's encouraging for us because God is pursuing those who do not know Jesus. He is. And I want to encourage us in this this morning that we can continue to take part in that pursuit and that we can continue to go before the Lord in prayer And we can continue to preach His message to those who do not know God. And yet, God is the one that is pursuing them. I've been reading a book uh, called A Severe Mercy by a man named Sheldon Van Alken. It's a great book. But in it, he sort of chronicles his, uh, well, it's his love for his wife, but also in that it's their journey towards Christ and towards God, more, more importantly. And uh, there's a moment where he is uh, in Oxford, and he's a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and he's kind of been corresponding with C.S. Lewis about his struggles with the faith, and sort of saying, "Well, I'm not sure if I can accept this part, but I'm close." And you know, there's there's all these sort of conflicts that are going on in himself, and he's trying to work those out. And yet, you know, you're you're sort of with him in this book, and you're. You're, you're thinking, man, you're almost there. Just it's, it's right there in front of you. Can you not just reach out and grab it? And you're wanting so bad for, for this guy to, to just jump in to faith. And in one of his letters uh, to C.S. Lewis, he's talking about this. And C.S. Lewis replies uh, to him. And there was just one phrase that I thought really uh, captured this aspect of God. And... Uh, it just, it just just stuck with me and it says the Holy Spirit is after you. I doubt that you will escape. <laughs> and I love that, you know, is the Holy Spirit is after us and I doubt that you will escape, you know, so menacing and yet so awesome, you know, that the Lord is is pursuing us. And and that's true for those who are who are not saved, so 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 very true for them. But at the same time, I don't want us to lose track of the fact that it's true for us also, you know, that the Holy Spirit is after us, and I doubt that we're going to escape the Holy Spirit, because he is the best pursuer in the world, basically. He's, he's the one that is, that is going to get what he wants from us, and uh, that's a comforting thought for me, and I, I hope it's a comforting thought for you also. Um, that, that God is is pursuing us and he wants he wants us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. Amen. So uh, as we look at the incarnation of God, we can see God coming down in the fullness of his glory and pursuing us in the fullness of who he is. And I want us to just relish in that this morning the the fact that God pursues us, and I want us to I want that to hit home with us, so that it changes the way we see this life, the way we see other people, the way we see ourselves in relationship to God. Um, next, let's move on to uh, Jesus in His death, and um, this is one that I think we as evangelicals uh, struggle with. Uh, I don't think that we spend enough time thinking about Jesus Christ in his death. In fact, a phrase that I have come across in my studying was the crucified Lord or the crucified Christ. And uh, that, that didn't sit well with me as I was thinking about that because I thought, well, no, our, our Lord is not crucified. Our Lord is resurrected, you know? We know the end of the story. He's been resurrected. And so, how can we say that he is the crucified Lord when he's been resurrected? And yet, I think that Christ in his death is something that we ought to give our full attention to. In fact, uh, it came to me that, that Christ in his death is our example in this life. That is, we look to follow Christ that where we are looking to follow Christ is Christ in His crucifixion, in His death. Often I think we just run, run past the crucifixion into the power and authority of the resurrection. But if we ourselves aren't crucified with Christ, if we don't die with Him, how then can we be raised again with Him in power and authority? The two go hand in hand. And in fact, the one always precedes the other. And so, as we turn our attention to Jesus, our crucified Lord, let us lift that up as the example that we are to follow. Let's lift Jesus in His death as the one that we are looking to because the truth is that we want to run to the end of the story. We know the end of the story that, that we will be redeemed and that we will be raised again with Him. But, the truth of the matter is that we aren't living in the end of the story. We're living in the midst of a place where we are constantly having to die to ourselves and a place that we are constantly being called to follow Christ in His death so that we may be one day made perfect at the resurrection, but we are not there yet. And so as we look at Jesus Christ in His crucifixion, we're looking at the one that we are to be uh, obedient to. Even as Christ said in His crucifixion, it's the fulfillment of His phrase, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. It's the fulfillment of His desire in that. And I think that that ought to be our heart as we come to the Lord, as we seek to be servants of the Lord, that our, that our heart and our cry should be lowered, not My will, but Yours be done. And in, that, and in that, that statement, in that desire, we are constantly having to put ourselves to death. We're constantly having to put down the old man in hopes that the new man will be raised again in us. And yet that's constantly having to happen. And so as we turn our eyes to Jesus, as we, as we look at Him, I think that, that Jesus is the crucified Lord calls us to look to Him every single day that we live. That as we turn our eyes to Jesus, we ought to do this every single day that He has given us life. Because this is the process that, that will cause us to be raised again with Him in the hope of glory. And yet we're living in the midst of of sin, in the midst of our selfishness, in the midst of the old man constantly rising up in us. And Jim gave an inspiring uh, message about the freedom that's found in Christ last week. And I think that is such an important aspect of, of our walk with God. and yet and yet it always, the freedom always takes place when we say lord not my will but yours be done when we are not the center of our own of our own world when we put christ on the throne and so as we look at it god and we look at christ in his crucifixion the first thing that we see i think is is our example in obedience to the lord but the second thing i think that we always must see when we look to the crucified Lord, is the sufficiency of His sacrifice to remove our sins. Amen? That when we look to Jesus on the cross and as we, as we see Him as the example and we're struggling with that and we, and we say, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. What a wretched man I am. That we also look to the crucified Lord and say, Lord, Your sacrifice is sufficient to cover those parts of me that are imperfect. That when I say, Lord, this is what I should do, but I walk the other way, that we look to the crucified Lord and say, God, Your sacrifice was enough. It was sufficient for me, and I don't claim to be my own Savior. I don't hold on to my own ability to save me. I don't hold on to my own goodness. And I don't claim my sin is bigger than Your sacrifice. And I don't claim my sin is, is more than you can handle. And I, Lord, by faith I accept what it is that you've done on the cross. And so as we look at the crucified Lord, we, we see that example, but we also see the place that Jesus took for our sins. And I think our, our proper response ought to be that it, that it wells up in us just this, this tremendous amount of joy and worship when we stop and we really are aware of the depth of our own inadequacy and yet the depth that is deeper still in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And it's just a tremendous thought that we, when, we, when we slow down enough to really by faith enter into the truth of that, it changes us. It, it totally alters the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about other people. And so I want to call us to that this morning. I want to call us to thinking about the Incarnate Lord and His pursuit of us. I want to call us to think about the Crucified Lord and the depth of our own inadequacy to follow and be obedient, and yet the sufficiency of of his sacrifice. And if we can enter into that this morning, we will be so blessed. We will be so radically changed that we'll be able to go out and we'll be able to fill our circles, we'll be able to fill our worlds with the grace that is found. That if we this morning can soak up the truth like a sponge, we can go out and we can be be wrung out like a sponge over those who need the grace of God to fall on them. And we can be wrung out so that, so that we can come back to the Lord and be filled up again with the truth of His Gospel so that we can begin this process all over again. And I think, I think that's what the Lord is calling us to this morning is to be filled up like sponges so that we can then be run, wrung out and His grace can fall on, on those who need it. Amen? So, like I said, uh, the story does not stop there, does it? It goes on. We do know the end of the story. And it's a tremendous end of the story. Um, We see now that we turn our attention to the, the risen Lord. We turn our attention to Christ in His resurrection. To Christ in His glory, having been obedient to the Father, that God has lifted him up to the highest place, that all, would be, that all would be put under his feet. And the thing I want to compare here is the fact that we have that very same hope of glory that Christ has. And if you'll permit me for a moment, another quote by C.S. Lewis because it's awesome. Um, I've been reading his work uh, the weight of glory, and uh, in that he, he sort of expounds on the idea of what glory is, and uh, he says he's kind of troubled at first by what he sees, because when he looks at glory, he kind of gets two different ideas. The first is the idea of fame, where, which connotes sort of competition among other people, and he says that troubles him because it's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't seem very Christianly. To just want to be better than other people or be more famous than other people. And the second idea that he gets, which isn't very appealing either, is luminosity. And he says, who wants to be a living electric light bulb? <laughs> and so neither of those ideas of glory to him at first seem very appealing. And yet as he looks more deeper into what truly the glory of God is as revealed in us, as he says, he he sees that rather the glory of God is not some being lifted up. It's not some fame or some shiningness, but rather it's the pleasure of God that gets reflected in us. That That our glory is the glory of the pleasure of God as He looks at us and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That in that moment, that we, that our hearts, will be filled with joy that we've been looking for all of this time. That we've been searching for that very phrase. For our Creator to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in that moment, in our colloquial way, we say we will be in all of our glory. Because God the Father smiles at us and says, here's my pleasure and I'm giving it to you and you have done well. And so... The two are inextricably linked: Our obedience to Christ and our obedience that is we're over here looking at the crucified Lord, that we say, "I am dying to myself, and I'm, I'm holding up Christ as an example for obedience, that that very act is what leads us into the possibility of our resurrection and of the Lord being pleased with us. Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, it is impossible to please God. And yet that is the very thing I think that we're talking about when we say that we have a hope of glory. And so, in that, the same idea that we have a hope of glory, that our glory is eternal. That once we have attained the resurrection from the dead, as Paul says, is his hope that our glory is eternal, that it will will last from then until forevermore. And uh, again, Lewis, in in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, expounds on that and says uh, that that is a tremendous burden that we have to bear. And I'll, I'll read the quote that... Uh, He has for us there. It says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. However, it is hardly possible to think too much or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. The backs of the proud will be broken. And the truth is that every day we are in, interacting with immortal people, with immortal beings that will be in existence forever and that they are either destined for an eternal glory or an eternal shame that shame hardly does the word. And yet I think it might be an accurate reflection of what of the heartache in, in the agony that would be our Creator not being pleased with us, of God expressing his ultimate displeasure with us, that will last until eternity. And so as we look around, as we as we move, as we as we work, as we live, as we go to the store, you know the the people that we are interacting with are immortal people they will be either destined for an eternal glory or eternal shame. And this is a weight that ought to be laid daily on our backs as we daily look at our resurrected Lord, as we daily look and are reminded of the glory that is in the resurrection, that is our hope. That if that resurrection isn't real, that we of all men are most to be pitied because our hope is only in this life. But it's not. Our hope rests beyond this life, outside of this time. And so, our hope of glory ought to be a constant reminder that it is the exact same hope that others can have and the exact same fear that others will have also. And so, as we we daily look to Jesus, as we daily fix our eyes on Him, we ought to have that weight daily laid on our back. And if we can just just for a moment again, just, just soak in that truth and allow that to penetrate our hearts and allow it to fill, it, fill us with that response towards the Lord, that we'll be blessed, we'll be changed. Amen? And so... In closing, I just want to just want to sum up and allow us to again just be just be covered with the story that is the gospel. That we have an incarnate Lord who is pursuing us, that we have a God that has come down and has sought those that he loves tremendously. And in doing so, he's He's gone to the cross. That He may take our inadequacies. That He may take all of our shortcomings. That we may follow Him in His resurrection. That we may may be like Him in His death. So that through the power of His resurrection, we will be made like Him. It's a tremendous story. It's a tremendous, tremendous thought that if we can soak in that on a daily basis, we'll be blessed. And uh, I want to sort of just end with this one last thought, because that might seem like a, uh, an overwhelming task, that as we go, as we wake up tomorrow and re- return to the the Mondays of our lives, the, the days that we get sucked back into the, the work world, or the world of, of just the routine that we, that we lose track of Jesus Christ that we've here caught a glimpse of, I want to remind us that the very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead also dwells in us. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that an encouraging thought? Amen. That the very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that, that, that enacted that awesome work of power that, that overcame death, Surely, surely that Spirit exists in us and can empower us to live lives that are worthy of the calling that God has placed on our lives. Isn't that an awesome thought? Isn't that an encouraging thought? That the same Spirit lives in us. And so as we go back, as we leave this place, we're taking that Spirit with us. We're taking the Spirit that has all authority and power in it and It is by that Spirit that we live. Not just in here, but we live every day out there. And so I want to encourage us to continue to be filled with that Spirit as we we look upon the person of Jesus Christ, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead also dwells in us. And we can be encouraged Amen? So I hope that this message sticks in your heart, that we take it, and it's not meant to be just for here, but meant to be taken with us and and to be thought about each day that God has given us to live. And so I pray that it be in you, that it be in your hearts, that you be filled with the gospel message here. So let's go to the Lord and let's ask Him to just consummate the message in our hearts. Father God, we thank You that You are in this place. We thank You that You fill us with Your Spirit, Lord. Thank You that You enable us to live holy lives, God. Lord, I pray that You would never let us escape. That Your Spirit would be after us. That It would be hounding us. Father God, as we go from this place and as we wake up tomorrow morning, Lord, that we would be drawn to You. That we wouldn't lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ that's standing before us. That we wouldn't lose sight of the truth of who You are, Lord. So I pray for each one here, Lord. Fill them with a tremendous knowledge of the Gospel story, Lord. That they would be filled with it. That their hearts would be full with the Gospel story, with the truth of Jesus. God, I pray that You would just touch each of us now, that we would that we would be empowered to walk in supernatural ways, God. Empowered to walk as Peter walked on the water, Lord, just just supernaturally above what is possible for ourselves and our in our flesh to walk. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, God. We thank you that you are. Thank that you thankful. We thank you that we that you are faithful, Lord. Lord, we just give you all of the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.